Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Julia Field tōku ingoa. My name is Julia Field and I'm a counsellor working in a large secondary school in Christchurch. This is the first of two podcasts introducing the subject of eating disorders and I'm going to be asking Elaine some questions that have been raised regarding how we as professionals can best respond to young people who present in a school setting with signs of disordered eating. Kia ora, my name's Elaine Franks. I'm the Consult Liaison Outpatient Nurse for the South Island Eating Disorder Service here in Christchurch. So Elaine, working in schools with young people, we feel very frontline in terms of eating disorders. As counsellors, we can find ourselves being the person to whom young people turn when they're concerned about themselves and their relationship with food, or a friend they care about, or a parent or a staff member notices changes in a young person about which they're worried. For example, loss of weight, excessive exercising, disappearing after eating a meal, or avoiding social situations where food is involved. So could you describe for us some other key indicators that a young person may be developing an eating disorder? So as a school teacher or a school counsellor, you very much have got to know the pupils, um, possibly over quite a long period of time. You know them quite well and have developed those relationships over the years. You know their strengths and weaknesses quite often. And it may be that you're the first to notice um, cognitive changes such as decreasing enthusiasm, poor concentration and just generally looking unwell. But what we do sometimes see is that despite poor nutrition, students can become more focused on schoolwork, striving for, for perfection, which is often a personality trait of, of disordered eating. Sometimes those around the young person may notice behavioural changes such as baggy clothing, not changing into the summer uniform because they're either too cold or because it might emphasise a weight loss that they're trying to hide. And of course eating disorders are shameful illnesses quite often that the student will protect at all costs. Those are probably the first signs to be noticed. Very often a student will seek out the counsellor with concern about a friend because friends are very often the first person to spot signs of an eating disorder. Some of the things they might start to notice are that their friend's skipping meals, that they're losing weight, again they're wearing baggy clothes, their mood's low, they find it difficult to have a conversation and they often don't want to socialise, especially around food, going out for meals. They might notice increased trips to the bathroom, especially after meals, upping their exercise or looking generally unwell and pale. Depending on the closeness of the friendship, the student may disclose to the friend that they're on a diet and, for example, need to fit into a smaller size formal dress, um, which sounds very feasible. And they may draw each other in towards this goal, along with the whole friendship group. As it becomes more apparent to the student that their friend is getting quite unwell and they begin to think this may be an eating disorder, they'll begin to get worried and have concerns and most likely at that time approach a teacher or you as the school counsellor for advice and support. There are a wide range of other physical, psychological and behavioural warning signs which counsellors should be aware of and there will be a link to them at the end of this podcast. Okay, thank you. So... 
certainly we notice in schools many, many young people do experiment with losing weight and do seem quite obsessed with their appearance. Can you put this in the context, Elaine, of how serious it can be if an eating disorder takes hold in a young person's life? So what we know is that eating disorders are very serious mental illnesses with significant life-threatening medical and psychiatric morbidity and mortality. And that's not always related to weight. Anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Risk of premature death is up to 12 times higher than for the general population. If you add into that scenario diabetes type 1, that risk rises even higher. There are some studies coming out of Australia at the moment that are identifying very large numbers of girls with body dissatisfaction and a rising number of boys. So around 70% of girls are unhappy with their bodies. What we also know is that early intervention leads to improved outcomes and recovery rates. So utilising Maudsley-based family therapy, which Heidi will talk about in the next podcast, um, the recovery rate is around 70% if they present in the first year of developing an eating disorder. If they go untreated, um, they the likelihood is they will go on to develop a severe and enduring eating disorder, which can last for many years, indeed a whole lifetime, and becomes very embedded and entwined with their personality and very difficult to treat. So what we're looking at in schools is that window of opportunity related to the age of prevalence for the development of an eating disorder, which is around that age group, getting younger, but around 14 to 17. So obviously it's extremely important for us to take any concerns brought to our attention, such as these, very seriously. We'll we'll come back shortly to how we can support the friends of the young person, but could you give us some guidance on the best way for me as a counsellor to proceed once these concerns have been raised? So raising your concerns by way of discussion with the parents is probably the best way forward. Sometimes it may be that you can have a conversation with the student to get them to talk to their parent for an arrange a visit to the GP. The parents themselves may or may not have noticed um, that an eating disorder is developing and that if they have noticed they they may not know what to say or what to do um, often causes high emotions in the family home they may not have noticed also so don't be surprised if they're not aware because the eating disorder is very good at staying a secret um, validating the parents concerns is helpful and may lead to them making appointment with their GP So the pathway to the South Island Eating Disorders Service, or for any treatment, is through the GP who will manage the medical concerns in the interim. So we'll continue to manage and monitor their medical stability and their weight. Eventually, consent will be sought from our service um, to the school counsellor, who's an important link during treatment um, because they're, they're with the child and they need to know what treatment is being offered and how it's working and what they can do to support it. Occasionally, um, the parents may need to persist with the referral to our service. The GP may, because of the focus in our society on obesity, if a young person loses a lot of weight but is still within the healthy weight range, 
The parents may know that there is a big eating disorder problem going on, but the GP may be willing to wait. So we would we would recommend the parents persist with the referral. Um, and if necessary, call our service for further advice if your concerns become stronger. Um, and maybe also some universities and some other organisations have developed a policy around attendance if they're feeling the child is too well, too unwell to, to attend to school. And they, they might need GP clearance, especially around, well, school attendance or, or participating in sport if they're medically unstable. Mm. Okay. So what is the process for referral and, and then assessment at Princess Margaret Hospital? So initially we would receive, um, presuming that that has gone according to plan, that the parent has taken the child to visit the GP, the GP's seen the need for a referral to our service, he will submit the referral through the pathway, which is quite straightforward and GPs are very aware of it around health pathways. The triage process in the service um, for young people is based around age, severity and risk. So young people within our service are prioritised because of that window of opportunity and, and, and the, the good chance of recovery at this age. We also know that young people need to be seen more quickly. They can fall off the cliff medically very quickly with nutritional restriction and over-exercise and other behaviours. So again, we look at that window of opportunity for treatment. The service will then, following triage, send out a letter to the parents offering an assessment um, and they'll be the parents will be invited to call the service for an appointment, which is usually on a Tuesday or a Thursday morning and can take the whole morning. At the time of the assessment, um, a full physical and psychiatric assessment is carried out. Following this, we will have a multidisciplinary team feedback and a plan for treatment. A possible diagnosis will be made at that time. And usually a first appointment is set with an identified case manager. I guess on occasion, we have the experience that the young person is severely medically compromised and may be directed immediately to Christchurch Hospital, either to paediatrics or an adult ward. From the age of 15, they would go to an adult ward and under 15 to um, the paediatric ward where they'll be medically stabilised prior to treatment with our service. Sometimes that admission by, might be required to the inpatient service at, um, on seaward, the eating disorders inpatient service. And occasionally, very occasionally, if they're resistive to treatment, we will need to utilise the Mental Health Act for, to enforce treatment at that time. Mm. This must be such a tricky journey for Fano to navigate. Again, thinking of us working in a school context, how do you feel that we can best support Fano who may have seen signs of an eating disorder in their teenager and may be feeling uncertain or fearful about what to say to them or may be in limbo as they're awaiting intervention? What we know is that parents are anxious around eating disorders, understandably, because quite often it's a, it's a very natural um, behaviour and instinctual response to feed your child, as a mother especially. And when you're not able to do that or when the child is refusing to eat, it provokes all sorts of emotional triggers such as anxiety, concern, frustration, even anger um, and a sense of helplessness and will raise the conflict at home around mealtimes quite often. 
whilst waiting for, for an appointment with our service, as I've said before, the GP will be able to offer some reassurance about medical stability and be aware of, of what to do in the event that they do become medically unstable. And they will also update us on any changes, especially regarding weight and medical stability. And this is all really well covered for the GPs via the Hospital Health Pathways website. So we would encourage parents to, to recognise their own powers, which they may not be aware of, around non-negotiables, in, i.e. eating with the family. It's quite difficult at this age. Some of the, some of the patients, some of the children may have individualised from the parents and be feeding themselves and looking after themselves and becoming quite independent at this time. And it's having to take that step back again to be looking after your child and nurturing them. It's just quite difficult both for the child, the young person and the parents to have to, to go back to that stage. Um, but yeah, just some basic non-negotiables are quite useful. So not allowing the child to go to school until they've had their breakfast um, and if they're pushing the boundaries by swearing, shouting, behavioural things, then thinking about the consequences you can implement. So, you know, reducing social activities at the weekend. But parents really need to align themselves to this being a serious illness compared, compared to a physical illness of, of such high severity. So I've noticed at school that often it's the friends around the young person with the eating disorder who are also quite affected, sometimes by way of taking a sense of responsibility onto themselves for their friend eating, or actually themselves being influenced by or, or even triggered by their friend's eating disorder. Yes. Friends may also voice concerns to you about themselves at this time, that they find it really triggering from their own weight and shape thoughts, and are they going to get into that dress? And should they be exercising more, skipping meals and going on a diet as well? So within the boundaries of, of your confidentiality with that friend, it's, it's really important to emphasise that they're not their friend's counsellor, they're not their doctor or their parent, and they need to be aware of their own personal boundaries. Keeping focused on, on just being a good friend, so hanging out together, sharing good times, with the with perhaps not a focus on weight and shape talk. They need to probably tell their friend that they are concerned about them and encourage them to seek and get some professional help. But if they're feeling triggered themselves by the eating disorder behaviours, they might also need permission from the counsellor to distance themselves in order to just protect themselves. The counsellor might find it useful at this time to describe and reinforce the friendship role, which would include doing their best not to talk about diets, food or body shape and weight, not trying to become, as I say, the food police, and themselves maintaining their own normal eating habits and enjoying food, looking after themselves in those ways of maintaining usual hobbies and interests, and just hanging out with all their friends in the usual ways. Some of the best ways for them to take care of themselves are, are for them to keep eating themselves and maintain their own sense of self and take care of themselves and speaking with their parents, maybe if they're feeling troubled. So social media, mm. of course, the pervasive presence and use of social media with our young people does seem incredibly influential in this space. What role does social media have for young people and eating disorders? 
And what would your guidance be around how we navigate this usefully with our clients? So it certainly is a big age of social media and platforms. And I guess social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr are really widely used by high school students, both in positive and negative ways. On the positive side, such as we know, they can be used to reconnect and share happy memories. But on the more negative side, for someone with disordered eating, they can emphasise perceived weight and shape issues. And again, I'd go back to the formal times when posting selfies of themselves in formal wear. At this time, receiving likes or not receiving likes can be seen by the person as a really negative response by friends. And, and confirm that their worst fears of possibly being overweight, um, diets, exercise, and other unhelpful tips are often shared. And as already discussed, diets can and really do trigger eating disorders. Also, what we know is that for ourselves, some internet sites give realistic and correct information about many health topics and be, can be used to increase knowledge in really useful ways. And validated sites should be recommended to give realistic and truthful information, whereas the more dubious sites should be discouraged. So there will be some links to some websites that are useful for this at the end of the podcast. So it's really useful for counsellors at this stage to ascertain by listening and clarifying what knowledge the students already sought. Um, you might find they've gathered information from viable sources, giving correct nutritional and healthy behaviours. However, the information may not be appropriate or correct. Fake news, we're all thinking of fake news, such as good and bad foods can increase fixation on total food group reduction or elimination, such as the fats and carbohydrates, um, and should be corrected with more appropriate nutritional advice. So historically, there have been lots of surveys and studies on the impact of eating on eating disorders via magazines and TV, but relatively few on social media. There are more coming out, and a, a really good recent study coming out of Australia identified that a greater number of social media accounts was associated with higher disordered eating scores for both behaviours and cognitions. Snapchat, Tumblr, Facebook and Instagram were highlighted um, for an increased prevalence of over-evaluation of weight and shape. So the study showed that pro-anorexia sites were likely to be particularly unhelpful in the giving out of information regarding how to achieve weight loss, how to hide missed periods from your parents and friends, how to vomit better, how to suppress your hunger pangs. Those, those are just a few um, some students were also visiting recovery websites at the same time. There was ambivalence in, in their thoughts. Those visiting the pro-anorexia type sites reported feeling understood and not judged, but at the same time, these colluded with the ongoing weight loss and behaviours. Um, and there's no doubt that the students will share this information with others at times, but remembering that it is a shameful and secretive disorder. So in some cases, they won't be sharing at all. And obviously, the suggestions are that we discourage visits to these sites, but at the same time, being non-judgmental for what's become a, a part of their illness and will be addressed in treatment. So using those listening, reflecting and clarifying in a non-judgmental way, it will become clearer 
will become clearer what the student has access and then to be mindful not to give information around other behaviours that they haven't accessed or assume that they know. But for example, if, if they disclose their purging by vomiting, it would be useful to give some limited psychoeducation around dental care. So what we know is that people that purge by vomiting, if they brush their teeth straight after vomiting, they will suffer dental um, problems because they're brushing gastric acid into their teeth. So we would advise to leave for half an hour, rinse their mouth out with warm water. So those very basic things that you can address, but being really careful not to give information or discuss inadvertently about other other methods they may not have yet gained information on around weight loss, such as enemas or diet pills. Thank you so much, Elaine. You've really emphasised how we as counsellors working in schools, along with our colleagues, can be alert to and know how to respond appropriately to concerns around a young person and their relationship with food. It's been really helpful to be reminded of how serious it can be if an eating disorder takes hold in a young person's life and how we can be a supportive and safe person for whanau, for friends and for the student themselves to turn to. A reminder to those listening that references Elaine has made are found on the Leading Lights website. The second of these two podcasts will be focusing on current best practice in treating eating disorders, including how we in the counselling profession can tautoko and support this. Music